Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and we'd like to thank you for joining us. Please like, share, and subscribe to support this and other great content. Our guest today is Rocket Norton, a Vancouver musician, author, and entrepreneur who's left an indelible mark on the North American music scene. Rocket began his career as a talented drummer for multiple renowned bands, including the legendary Seeds of Time, the Juno award-winning band Prism, and Revolver, the world's best Beatle band. Not only did Rocket mesmerize audiences with his exceptional drumming skills, he also showcased his versatility as a leader of the house band Rocky and the Jets on CKBU-TV's Vancouver show for several years. Rocket's impact extends well beyond the stage. He authored the captivating book Rocket Norton, Lost in Space, which delves into his captivating journey within the vibrant Vancouver music scene. In a remarkable collaboration, Rocket joined forces with Al Harlow and John Hall of Prism, Ab Bryant of Prism, Chilliwack and the Headpins, and Ray Ayotte, the founder of Ayotte Drums, forming a sensational group known as The Authentics. Together, they rekindled the magic of their classic songs, treating fans to an unforgettable experience. One of Rocket's proudest achievements is the creation of the rock opera titled Visions, Mission Andromeda. This groundbreaking masterpiece was recorded with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra and mesmerized audiences during its captivating performances at the Vancouver Planetarium. Beyond his musical endeavors, Rocket found joy coaching baseball. With his passion for the sport, he developed a highly successful video program called How to Coach Baseball to Kids, which has sold thousands of copies, inspiring coaches and young players alike. Rocket Norton's creative talents also extend to the realm of literature, having authored five books. And today, Rocket joins us from his home for an intimate look back at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's been working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. So, uh, okay, so here... I, I'm sitting in a situation where I've known you for how many years now? I think me and you met back in probably 1980, 81, somewhere in there. Um, possibly, when did you, possibly when did you come back. to Vancouver? Well, I don't recall meeting you when you're in prison. I don't recall meeting you at that point. I might have, but where I really remember meeting you was um, basically around the time you were forming the Ron Tobacco Band. And, ah, right. okay. and you came out to see Michael and I play with Trauma. Yeah, yeah. And you asked me to play guitar. And actually, that's that's a good place to start. Because, you know, a lot of people know the, the story of Prism, but we'll get into that. But now, in this situation, Prism has ended. Now, what happened? Why did Prism end? Like, what's your what's your your story on that? That's a complicated I mean, story. I mean, the, the Prism with Ron Tabak, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's, that's the only one that really mattered. Um. It, it's, I mean, it, it's so incredibly complicated that I wrote a book about it, and it's 555 pages long. Really? So it's um, it's a complicated story. Well, uh, is that a yeah, new book? All the way back to the Seeds of Time, which was the original band. And the, there were some complications and some, some personnel conflicts to go all the way back to when we were teenagers. So... Um, so, but the the what really happened uh, at the end of the prism thing was two things. Um, uh, we were difficult to work with, and um, Bruce Fairbairn, who 
started as a producer by by forming the Prism Band, um, and it had a lot of success with Prism. Was now getting um, was now uh, in the sights of of other record companies that wanted him to produce other other shows, or other bands. I mean, so he um, he was kind of losing interest in us and starting to look at other projects. And he was our undisputed leader. So as he started to kind of look at other other um, projects, um, that kind of left us. Um, kind of on our own devices, and we weren't very good that way. We we needed a strong leader like him. Um, the second problem um, was also the reason, one of the biggest reasons for our success, and that was Ron Tabak, our vocalist. Um, Ron really had an in- incredible gift, uh, and his voice was amazing. Um, and uh, but he started having some personal problems and some trouble uh, to the point where it was almost impossible to work anymore. Uh, That was, I think, the major reason because we probably could have found another producer, Um, maybe not someone like uh, like Bruce Fairburn. He was amazing. But there were lots of amazing producers out there. So... But Ron's problem uh, was, at the time, unfixable. Um, everybody tried, and uh, nobody got anywhere to the point where we really couldn't write, we really couldn't record. And um, so the band broke up. Mm. Well, because, like, of course, Spaceship Superstar came out, which was a Jim Valance product, well, basically... Who produced the Bruce Fairburn produced the album? Jim Valance wrote most of the songs on the first album, correct? Right. right. Yeah. And, and Spaceship, Spaceship Superstar was an, a massive hit. What were the other hits off of that album? Uh, open Soul Surgery? Uh, uh, open Soul Surgery, funny. If, um, open Soul Surgery was the song that Valance wrote, Jim Valance wrote, um, that got us a record deal um, with GRT Records. Um, a Canadian record company. They loved that song and they signed the band on the strength of that song. Um, but um, Spaceship Superstar was the big, was the first hit. Uh, there was also a song called Take Me to the Captain with a K, um, Captain with a K. Um, and uh, that was a pretty big hit. And a ballad called It's Over um, was also quite a big hit. So we had uh, between those singles that that um, helped us have a big success with the first album, and that you know launched launched the band. I, I didn't realize that, or I forgot that it's over was on the first album because that's such yeah. a sophisticated song. What a beautiful tune! It's a beautiful song. Um, Jim Valance wrote it uh, as a, a kind of a and and Bruce Fairburn's wife's name was Julie. I think it's where he got the name. I don't know if he actually wrote it for her particularly, but it's a beautiful song. Yeah. And and uh, now, how how large was Spaceship Superstar as a single? Did it, was it big in the States as well? Uh, I don't know if it was big. GRT, we, when we signed with GRT Records, uh, we signed um, uh, originally with them. And then uh, by this time, Bruce Allen uh, 
was involved as our manager. And he immediately got us signed up for the rest of the world um, with Areola Records, which was a giant German company, giant in Europe, and we're making inroads into, or wanted to make inroads into the U.S. And um, we were really their first, their first act. They had a couple others. I can't even remember who they were, but um, uh, we were the one that they really, they really pushed. And so, so now we're we're back. We're back at the beginning of the prison, which is probably fine because we were we were talking about the end. But this is this is good too. Okay, so prism starts, and and it's basically the brainchild. Well, Jim Valance, if I, please correct me if I'm wrong. Jim Valance was writing demos. He found the voice. I think Ron was in a band called Stanley Steamer at the time. Uh, I think, I, yeah. Um... Ron was really just floating around. Um, and uh, Bruce Fairburn and Lindsey Mitchell, the guitar player, um, who had been the guitar player in the Seeds of Time uh, for 10 years with myself and John Hall, Steve Wally, and Jeff Eddington, um, the two of them went out and saw Ron in a lounge, like a Holiday Inn lounge somewhere. And I don't know what kind of material he was doing, um, but uh, they, he, Ron knocked him out. I mean, he just, they were blown away. So they brought the, it was the, it was the two of them, uh, Bruce Fairburn and Lindsay Mitchell, they brought Ron, brought Ron to back into the band. And then Balance was writing the songs. And um, in fact, I remember hearing the demo of Open Soul Surgery. It's just, Blew me away. No wonder um, GRT Records uh, signed a man. Tremendous performance. Wow. And that would have been probably on Jim's eight track. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Um, because, well, because I'm thinking. So, so Ron gets Ron gets into the band, and there's all this success. Now, but there was at the beginning, wasn't Tom Lavin involved on the first album, or did he? What did he play, or was he like part of the touring thing? Like who actually yeah, played? Yeah, on the, who played on the first album? I don't. Uh, lots of people. Yeah. Was, uh, lots of lots of musicians coming and going because it wasn't. It was a demo. It was, at that point. It was a demo project. Right. Um, and um, and then there, and then GRT signed it, um, and then they completed. You know, then the album got completed. Um, and came out. Now, Tom Lavin um, is an incredible bass player. He, he's a multi-instrumentalist, just the most talented guy around. Um, so he signed on to be the bass player. Um, so um, so now it was Ron Tobacco on singing, on voice, Lindsey Mitchell on guitar, Tom Lavin on bass, John Hall, the keyboard player from uh, The Seed of the Time, on keyboards, and me on drums. Um, Jim Valance is an awesome drummer, but didn't want to be the drummer in the band. He, he wanted to be a songwriter, and it worked out for him rather well. Uh, <laughs> I'd say. Yeah, and, uh, um, and so, um, and so that, was, that was how the band started. So we, we did, um, gosh, it must have been, about six months of touring all over the United States, like right away, um, 
on the uh, on the back of the Prism album. So Spaceship Superstar was the single and did very well. Um, wasn't what you call a big hit at the time um, in the United States, um, but it gave us it gave us the the uh, backing to um, to get on all kinds of tours, which Bruce um, Allen was responsible for. He 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 had us working every night, different cities every night. I mean, we were flying around. We were we were in rented Oldsmobiles. We were on tour buses. We were in trucks and everything it took, you know, to get to the next. I don't think we had a day off in six months. Um, we got at the end of six months. We got back. It was around Christmas, and um, I think Tom Lavin wanted to start a, a different project, uh, which he had probably wanted to do uh, even before he started with Prism, and he uh, so he left to start the Powder Blues Band. Uh, which was also uh, a phenomenal success and a wise move on his part. And he, he still has it running today, and it's fantastic. Um, so uh, we were without a bass player all of a sudden. And um, my really good friend, Al Harlow, uh, when we were bouncing around uh, Europe together, and we, two of us went over and 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 partied in Europe for about four months previous to all this. And he once said to me that he'd been thinking of taking up the bass, just an, uh, an offhand comment. So I said that to Bruce Farmer. I said, well, now we need a bass player. My friend Al Harlow has told me he'd like to play the bass. So Fairburn immediately goes to see uh, Al playing in some little gig and offers him the gig of playing bass in the prison band. Al thinks about it overnight and goes, yeah, that sounds great. And um, so we started 1978 um, in the studio recording our second album. Um, and uh, we had, that was, that was the band that, that everybody came to know the five, the five man band that, that, um, that was the, um, you know, the face of the whole success of prison. Now, so, did, the, did Spaceship Superstar land in 78 or 79? 77. 77. Okay, because I remember you guys coming in and playing two dates at the Body Shop. And I was at both shows because we were managed by Bruce at the time, I believe. So we, I, I went to see both shows. Now, Al was in the band at that point. Was that probably a couple of his very first gigs? Yes, actually, that was 1978. I just re I just remembered that, that we did that, because um, it was the first time. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't the first time. It was one time before this. It was the second time I'd ever ridden in the limousine. And the, the memorable thing about it was that it was one of those stretched Lincolns that was enormous. It was the size of a house in the, uh, in the 70s. Uh, and it was the former uh, limousine of the president of the United States. Um, well, I guess at the time, well, that was previous to Reagan. I, I don't know who that, Nixon, I guess. Um, anyway, I, I guess what they, they sold it to some company in Vancouver. And there we were. And that limousine took us to the body shop and we played a showcase there. And that was the where we were uh, showcasing the See Forever Eyes album, which was our second album. Wow. 
<laughs> I, I can't remember we played two shows. You said we played two shows. Yes, yeah, it was yeah, we played you played a show, flipped the crowd and played another show. Same night. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I was gonna say, um uh you were talking about you and Al being in Europe. And I remember reading your book, by the way, if anybody hasn't read Lost in Space, The Rocket Norton Story, get it. It's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Like I told you, I think on an email, I wrote it. I think I read it three times and plus piece through it a number of other times as well. I, oh. haven't, I haven't touched it for quite some time. So there's going to be some facts that I'm going to be, but I was, I was a huge fan of the book anyway, but there, there was a period of time where you and Al just up and went to France. Like, no, uh, well, we went to London, right? but we, we ended up in many, many places, some of which I forget. Now, this is back way be before Prism. This is when you guys are yeah. playing in club bands. Oh, yeah, way before. Seeds of Time. Uh, and uh, Al had a band uh, called the uh, the Wits Kids. Um, he was a guitar player, uh, singer, songwriter, performer. Um, he's quite a showman. Right. Well, he's, he's still, he still puts on quite a show. I was yeah. going to say, um, so how how... Did you raise the money to get to Europe? That is a good question. Friends and family, mostly. Um, we Al had no money at all. When I got there, we were living on the street. Um, of course, he had a fabulous wardrobe. Um, but um, I have no idea. I have and, no idea. And you guys met up with a couple of girls there. Now, did, did, they, did you end up staying with them? Is that how that worked out? We did. Um, we did rely on the uh, good nature of of a female company. Um, I mean, we were 20, 20 something years old. Twenty three, I guess. I was twenty two, twenty three, and um, and uh, yeah, we just hooked up and uh, we got taken care of. Uh, Al was particularly good at this. Um, at at and not, I mean. When, yeah, I mean, there were there was lots of female companionship. You remember now, we we grew up in an era called the Summer of Love, and the Summer of Love lasted about three years. It started in '67 and it lasted about three years. Um, it ended uh, at the end of '69, the beginning of 1970, and then began the Summer of Sex, uh, which was an entirely different animal. Um, so behavior, boys and girls' behavior in those days it was, is, uh, you know, it's unbelievable to people today uh, how we all, you know, um, interacted with each other. I mean, and it, it became literally the summer of sex. I mean, everybody was sleeping with everybody and there was just no, there were no restrictions. Um, there wasn't really anything to... People were, you know, if you wanted to do it, you just did it. And then, um, so it was a whole different attitude. Uh, people today hearing this kind of behavior might be, might be kind of, you know, be shocked as, as I am, as I say, I, um, in my defense, um, I think I might've made the whole thing up. <laughs> yeah, I was, so uh, now in and amongst all of this, summer of sex, summer of love, all that sort of stuff, there's the birth of the legendary now, Seeds of Time, your band. Now, what year did the Seeds of Time form? Seeds of Time, believe it or not, formed in 1965 in high school at the Winston Churchill High School, where I went to school in Vancouver. 
And um, we had, it was um, uh, actually John Hall was in that band and myself. And, um, and then Steve Wally, the bass player, joined. We were in like grade 10, I guess. Um, and we had a couple of seniors, uh, kind of a couple of grade 12 guys that played guitars and sang. And um, then, then the drug started. LSD showed up. It wasn't even illegal in those days. Um, and, you know, being 15, 16 years old, there didn't seem to be any harm in it. Nobody said it was bad for you. And we just started doing it. And the senior guys in our band didn't, didn't like that. They were on their way to university. They were, you know, um, not going to be lifelong musicians. Whereas the other three of us, especially m myself and John, I know for me, I mean, I, I knew this is exactly what I was going to do the rest of my life. So um, we got Lindsay Mitchell and a guy, a singer named Jeff Eddington, who was the first rock star I'd ever seen. Now, rock star hadn't even been invented yet, but he was just playing around town. And uh, he, he had, he had capital C charisma. And um, so that was the seeds of time by 1967. That was the five members of the seed of time. And we stayed together on and off, mostly on until pretty much until PRISM started in 1977. Wow. So Jeff Eddington and Lindsay Mitchell were in the same band together? Yes, they were in a band called William Talon, the Marksman. And um, and um, <laughs> Lindsay fired Jeff from the band because Jeff show kept showing up stone on acid to the rehearsals. So Jeff came and joined the Seeds of Time, and then we just realized that we needed a guitar player too. So Lindsay said, "Oh, well, I'll come and play with you guys." <laughs> so even though Lindsay had fired him from the from the William Tell and the Marksman, the two of them ended up in the Seeds of Time, and we were together all those years. I remember in your book, Lost in Space, the uh, the the time when you first saw Jeff Eddington on stage, and it was yeah. like one of those. The sound of of the heavens opened up to you. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, and it was in a little a little uh, community hall uh, gig somewhere that William Tell and the Marksman were playing, and John Hall and I, you know, went over to see this this crosstown band that were making you know people were hearing about how good they were, and I walked walked in. There was like forty people in the whole place, you know, and and, and there was there was the band. I looked up there, and there was Jeff at the microphone holding it in a way sort of sort, sort of a sort of a, a um a jim morrison you know this that kind of like animal magnetism just you know, all the greats the jim morrison's the the mick jaggers you know we you can't take your eyes off these guys i mean they just they uh they demand your attention and jeff was one of those kind of guys they have it it's like uh locally i think a person who has that is dave Steele. Dave Steele. Dave, Dave Steele can be on stage doing nothing, and you can't help but look at him. Yeah. He's one of those guys that just draws you right in. One of the greatest voices I think Canada's ever produced, and nobody really knows about him. They've heard him. I him. did a gig with David Steele back in the 80s, and it was a piece of music um, that myself and John Hall and a guy named Skip Press, who we'll probably talk about, um, uh, wrote and it, we played it with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra 
and we sold out the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. Seafox uh, um, FM radio in Vancouver got behind it. Somehow we sold the whole place out. So there was 3,000 people there to see this thing. And I had David Steele was the singer. So the band comes out and we do about a 15 minute piece, instrumental piece with the symphony. We're playing away on the stage. And then it comes time for the vocalist to start. And David Steele, who is unknown to everybody, comes out doing the Chuck Berry duck walk. <laughs> you know, across the stage, the entire audience leapt to their feet cheering. Yes, David Steele, I think you could say, has charisma. Yeah, he's an incredibly gifted singer. One of the best I've ever heard in my life. Um, uh, you know, he reminds me almost of like a Bono. Bono could be up on stage doing nothing. You can't help but look at him as well. Yeah, yeah, you're um, right. Yeah, but I, I, I got to retrace back, back a few years ago. Now it's possible that this happened around the time that you may have. There was something going on because I remember hearing you on C Fox Radio doing an interview. And the legendary seeds of time were getting back together again for something special. Now, this I'm I'm thinking this might have been in the '90s, maybe late '80s. And I remember you; they were talking about how the you were they were saying, "Oh, you guys rehearsing a lot." And you said, "Well, if the rehearsing is anything like the way we used to rehearse, we would just lock ourselves into a dark closet with no light and see if we could all clap at the same time." <laughs> Yes, we actually did that. That's right. That is very. That is a true story. And uh, there were drugs involved in in (laughs) original days. And um, in the nineties, or at this time, um, you know, uh, we weren't drugs were long, long in the past. So uh, (laughs) I don't doubt if we could have pulled that off. Uh, See, the time never, never, never practiced. I never practiced a day in my life. no, we never, we didn't have practices. Um, we got together and, and, and wrote songs, you know, once in a while. Uh, and, and we would just pick up songs. We just, uh, we would just show up at gigs and just start playing. Somebody would play a song. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a top 40 song or, or a song by, um, some obscure, you know, band from, from uh, you know uh, South America, whoever, whatever, and and we just we just we never learned the song. We just played them, and uh, even even hits like if we were to play uh, you know uh, a, a Doors song, "Light My Fire." I never I never listened to. I mean, I listened to it. On, how could you help but hear that song? Great song, but I never sat down and and learned the drum part. I just just played it, and uh, so the seats of time were quite quite unique in that way. Uh, uh, I don't know what it is we had, but people liked it. And so we kept doing it. Well, you guys just used to travel all over the place. And you you go into the interior of BC somewhere, some small town, and just set up at the local band show without telling anybody and just yeah. start playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we would we would hire the local IOOF hall. I don't know what IOOF stands for, but some kind of little, little wooden hall in, t- in the center of town. And um, it usually cost about $3 or $5 to, to hire the hall. And we would draw up posters. We'd sit in a cafe in town and draw up posters. You know, tonight, the seed of time at IOOF Hall. And um, we charge $2. And, you know, 60 people would show up or 
80 or 12 or whatever number. And uh, we'd have enough money to buy some peanut butter and uh, some bread and put some gas in the van. And then we'd go off to the next town and do it there. We went all the way to Halifax doing that. In the summer of 1968, from Vancouver to Halifax, barnstorming from town to town, um, figuratively setting up a tent, putting on a show, collapsing the tent, putting it back in the truck. I used to sleep under the van at the side of the road. Um, you know, we had, I didn't own a suitcase. I remember when they came to pick me up in the van, um, a little van with, you know, eight guys and all our equipment. And um, I had a brown paper bag with some socks in it. <laughs> so once again, how did we survive? Well, we survived on the kindness of strangers. Everywhere oh, we went. That was the whole came. summer love vibe, though. You know? That was the summer of love vibe. Yeah. And, um, people we, just, people sharing everything. People shared. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, with humans, that doesn't work. Um, that's not humans' nature. Um, so that's an unfortunate thing. Uh, when you look back on it, it was a wonderful experiment that blew up. <laughs> it just didn't work. Because, I mean, uh, by the 80s, all those hippies were driving BMWs and going to the Gap. So, you know, it just didn't work. And, but it was, not, and not I wish it had. And not wanting to share anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was, I mean, um, it, it, people just showed their true colors. I mean, greed rules the world. We, we, we see it every day. You know, uh, everything that's happening in, in the world is all, is all based on greed. I mean, mine, give me, give me my, what I want. I don't care what you want. And, um, I mean, communism, which is supposed to be the ultimate in that, that also proved didn't work. Right. Turns out it turns into a dictatorship. Yes, because because yes, because people the greed the communism ideal is actually utopia, but it'll never be that because there has to be people in power and ultimately they become like you say it's the greed yeah. that takes over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All animals are created equal, but some animals were created more equal than others. That's George Orwell from Animal Animal House, Animal Farm. Uh, animal Farm. Yeah. Animal House was a whole different thing. Yeah, and and much better. <laughs> <laughs> much better. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, so okay, so you say the seeds of time started in '65. Now, if I'm not mistaken, did you not pick up the drums when you saw the Beatles play in '64? That's correct. So you were playing drums for about a year and started the Seeds of Time. Yes. Actually, I started the band the day I got my... I, the day I traded... I, the next day after the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan Show, I took my accordion. That's right. I played the accordion. I took my accordion to the music shop and traded it in on a snare drum and a cymbal. And I started a band... The next day with my two friends that lived up the street, one of them played acoustic guitar and the other played piano. And um, we started the band, which lasted about well, 24 hours. Right. So, yeah, um, the, I had a band all the time, like this guy's at school that somebody had a, a key, an organ or something, and we would play it at uh, parties. 
but until until um 1965 when the seeds of time sort of formed that became that was a real band we actually we actually played gigs and most of the gigs in those days were high school hops you know sock hops and things like that uh like at lunch hour um and um so we would you know we would uh, have to take off school and go and, and and play the gig and then come back for the you know to school in the afternoon um there weren't a lot of gigs around but um uh, yeah, it started. Uh, I the thing is, I started playing drums. The only the only instruction I ever had was listening to my Beatle records. Uh, I would just come home from school and put on a Beatle record and play along to Ringo, and um, that's how I learned to play. And I never I never took lessons. I never practiced. I just did that. And then I had this the band. And the band played quite a bit see the time band and um at some point i just said to myself i'm going to keep doing this and they seem to like what i'm doing i didn't realize that i wasn't very good it, it never occurred to me because uh, that this wasn't part of the vocabulary i mean we were just we were just playing music and people liked it so there was there was no like hmm I'm not very good at this <laughs> i didn't doubt myself because i don't know i wasn't smart enough to doubt myself if I had doubted myself, I probably would have become a dentist. <laughs> Were your parents supportive of it? Uh, this is the interesting thing. Um, my dad was an accountant, uh, business guy, um, and my mom was a homemaker. This is the 50s, and then now into the 60s. Um, and um, the interesting thing for me, and looking back at it, is that my dad in particular never approved of it but he always supported me. And at one point later in life, he said, I'm really glad you never went into business. <laughs> Isn't that great? You know, so you have no siblings. I have a, a sister that's six years older than me, and she married almost out of high school. So I hardly knew her. She's really nice. And 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 her and her husband um, have, have uh, don't live in Vancouver. So... Um, but you know, when I was really little, you know, she was my older sister and we'd go on family trips and things together, but we were never what I'd call close. Yeah. And in all, in all the years I've known you, I never even knew you had a sibling. Yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah, it went off in a whole different world. And then, and then, you know, that happened to me too. I mean, when the seeds of time took off on these these barnstorming tours and, and uh, the first year we did it in 1967, um, I'm sorry, yeah, 67, um, we were we were all still in school, so we just did it in the summer. Um, but so I was like on the road at 15, you know. I mean, I um, and uh, so my life, uh, my my family, which was wonderful. Um, you know, I, I sort of took off. I like took off to join the circus, you know, and and um, so the next 30, 40 years are just a blur after that. So what were you like in school, like as a young boy? Like, let's say, let's say pre-Beatles. Were you a good student? Were you an average student? Were you just sort of make, just getting by, didn't care? That is easy. I was a lousy student. <laughs> I was the worst student in the school. I hated school. I 
when my mother, my mother took me to first grade, took me up to school, you know, held my hand, took me in, sat me in the class, went home, I guess. And about an hour later, the school phoned my mother and said, you're going to have to come back and get them. We, you know, I was just sat there and cried. Like, I just hated school, never liked it, never understood it. I just, and all the way through it, it got worse because as I got older and, and more, more confident in myself, I was never really confident, but more that way. I, every time I'd be learning, to, obviously we like to learn how to count, you know, and how to, how to, you know, spell and how to, you know, write, reading and writing. Um, other than that, the rest of it just seemed meaningless to me, you know, uh, even before music, like uh, I just never really saw the point. Uh, I personally think that we should be teaching children from a young age, uh, a curriculum that, that, that prepares little people to become bigger people. Uh, I don't know if all this, uh, uh, all this, uh, you know, history and all this stuff is all that meaningful. Now, we see that in other some other countries, countries very close to us who um, who don't teach geography, for instance. You know, um, and um, they they don't even know, you know, who's in the, the next state over or whatever. Sometimes, um, so I don't know, but I think there's a better way. I think there could be a much better curriculum um, for teaching. Um, then we're, we're still teaching the same stuff that we're, they were teaching a couple of hundred years ago. You know, it's a... Well, and even that's starting to shift because we're seeing now that history is starting to change because they're realizing, like they say, history is, is written by the victors, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So what, there's, so there's a whole bunch of history that gets many. washed out. And now you realize in the other, the other history that's coming through, you're going, wait a minute, you know? Yeah. Now that so now we're going now we're going backwards. Now we're now we're taking down statues of people uh, because it got discovered that they did some bad thing. And um, when when if 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 it hadn't been done properly, those statues never would have got put up in the first place. Um, I'm not saying we should go back and take them all down because the problem is that that there so much you you, you nailed it. You know like. We only learned the good history. We only learned that the history that people, some people somewhere in a room decided this is what we're going to teach to teach our people. And um, so much of what happened in the world a hundred or, or a thousand years ago um, wasn't, wasn't, we weren't given the straight goods. So, yeah, um, you mentioned the statue thing. And I, I often thought that statues coming down. Okay, but really, they should be repurposed. They should be in museums at the very least. Well, there, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because a museum this doesn't need to be just just for you know, this. All these good things happen. I mean, we that's one of our problems is that we don't learn from our history. Why do we keep having wars when we know the wars don't work? Yes. They don't solve anything. They don't work. So why do we keep doing them? Why, why do hundreds of thousands, millions of people die in wars? Uh, and yet we keep doing it because we don't teach ourselves. We don't learn from our mistakes. We kind of brush the mistakes under the under the, the carpet and try to carry on with a brave face. Well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't help us. Mm -hmm. Well, once again, it's like what they, a lot of times what they say about wars is it's rich people 
using poor people, you know, to, 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 to win a game, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny when you think of, when you hear that in in the middle ages or, you know, many, many hundreds of years ago, uh, the life expectancy of, of humans was pretty short. That's not surprising when, when you realize you think in, in the year 950, there was nothing for anybody to do. There was no internet, no no television, no movies. There was hardly any theater. With no book. When did when did Gutenberg invent the printing press? I mean, I can't remember. But anyway, what did people do? They had nothing to do. Let's go to war. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's have a war. I mean, it keeps people active. It gets them outside, you know, in the fresh air. Um, I mean, no wonder you know all the men died at like twenty or whatever they died at, and. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, and 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 in, in a sense, we're still doing it. I, I just uh, I, I don't see why we haven't learned from from the mistakes. It's a fascinating thing because it goes back to what we what we learn in school versus what we learn when we're out in the world. Like personally, I don't know how your school is. I don't even have my grade ten. I don't consider myself to be. Uh, an ignorant person, uh, I, I, because I've read and I've, I've, I've taught myself through life what's gone on historically, what's gone on geographically. Not as, not as much as a, you know, a scholar, but I mean, I certainly know more than the, I think more than the average show, which is amazing yeah. because I don't have the schooling to back it up. But, um, and how the reason I say that is, so you graduated. I did not graduate. What happened to me is I was in grade 11 and I was a, a passing student. I get B's and C pluses and stuff. I don't know how. Um, like, for instance, what really, I mean, this, this really bothers me. Like, I'm in English class and like, like um, uh, and w- um, the teacher would read uh, an excerpt from a uh, passage from some book. And then the class was to give their opinion on what that meant or how did that what did that mean to you. So I would I would say, oh well what that meant to me is this, this, and this. And then the teacher would say, oh well that's just wrong. That's not whatever. And I've gone, well how can I be wrong? Because this is how I this is how I perceived it. So the person who wrote it, they were they wrote it, I'm reading it, this is what I'm getting out of it. And you're telling me that, that I'm wrong? How could I be wrong? Um Anyway, so what happened is, I'm in grade 11, I'm doing okay. It was at the end of grade 11, I get my report card. Now, during grade 11, um, uh, I was singled out at school as a troublemaker because I had long hair, which meant you know that I basically had kind of a beetle cut, which when these... When you look back at it, those early beetle cuts were pretty short hair. You know, yeah. It was just didn't have bro cream in it. Um, and so what they did to me is they wouldn't let me go to class because they said that I was disrupting the class just by being there. So when I, I had to come to school, otherwise I'd be truant and they could kick me out of school. So I had to come and they put me in a little closet uh, in, the, in the hallway by the nurse's um, office. Um, and I had to stay in the closet for all the morning. I could come out at lunch. And then I had to go back in for the afternoon, and then I could go home at 3 o'clock. Good and, Lord. Are you yeah, kidding me? Yeah, well, this happened. It, it went on for several weeks. 
And then uh, a friend uh, of, of, of mine and the band um, uh, was a writer for our local uh, newspaper, for the Vancouver Sun. She got wind of this and wrote a, an article on how they were basically torturing students at Winston Churchill High School. And so the whole thing blew up, and the principal of the school got um, retired. He didn't get fired. He got retired. Uh, and um, I, this was right at the end of the school year, and I was allowed to go back to class. Well, they failed me in every class. And I said, well, look, I had passing grades. You weren't attending class, they said. I said, well, you wouldn't let me. You locked me in a room. Well, that was your decision, wasn't it, they said. And um, so they failed me and everything. And I had, to, I had to, instead of going to grade 12, I had to repeat grade 11. And I went for about three or four days because of my poor parents. I thought, well, this would just be too hard on them. So I'll just suffer through. I made it through about three or four days, and I said, I just can't. I can't do this, so I quit. Mm. Now, the wow. funny thing is, flash forward 40 years, and um, the 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 um, alumni group or club or whatever it's called found me um, and asked me if I would come to the 40th reunion of Class of 68, and would I be the keynote speaker? Oh, so, my God. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I came. And so my thing was, it's, 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 it's totally fitting. Uh, my, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed on the blog to say what I said. Um, you can what say whatever I, you want. Are we allowed to use language? Of course. Okay. So my opening line was, I come up to the podium, and I got all my old school you know, mates out in the audience, and a lot of the old teachers who are now really old. Um, sitting there, and I come up and I lean on the podium, and my first line is, what the fuck were we thinking? <laughs> Brought the house down. And then I said, it's totally appropriate that you have chosen me to be the keynote speaker at our 40th graduation anniversary because I never graduated. And everybody knew the story of why. But, um, but uh, yeah, that's what happened. Interesting. That, that's incredible. So now when you so at the end of so at the end of grade eleven, you try to repeat grade eleven, gave up. So we're talking probably September of your grade twelve year, which would have been grade twelve year. So yeah. what did what what did you do when you when you quit school? What happened? What did you do? Would you just work with your band straight on or what did you do? Any day um, jobs or anything? No. Uh, we had two or three um seats. Two of the other guys in the band were already out of school. Uh, I think Jeff Eddington, the singer, had quit, and uh, Lindsey Mitchell had had um, had uh, graduated. So we we kind of hung out, and there were a couple of other uh, friends that I had around. Remember, this is the beginning of the whole sort of hippie thing, um, and so we kind of hung out. I did. I watched a lot of um, you know um, I Love Lucy on television <laughs> in the mornings, you know, uh, and. Um, and really didn't do a hell of a lot. Uh, it was uh, not a good good period because I didn't know what where I was going to be going in life. Like I, you know, I'm fifteen, sixteen, sixteen, I guess. I really didn't know where I was going to, he you know, heading now because up till then I'd always thought, well, I'll graduate and I'll probably go to university and something, you know, I'll do something. Um, 
now and now I just I said, okay, well, this is what I'm doing now. You know, I'm I'm a musician. Like, um, but did I practice? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got on street corners and smoked cigarettes mostly. Um and um and then, you know, all, all through that year, uh I I had a full time girlfriend now who lived in North Van, so I you know, that was a whole day, you know, track to get over there and back. Um, and it just wild away. I can remember um, sitting on the dock of the bay, my oldest Redding. You know, that was my kind of my attitude, just whistling, you know, the time away. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, uh, at the end of that school year, that's when we took off on that big barnstorming tour across the country and ended up in uh, Montreal, where we ended up living for about three three months incredible scene there we just loved it um so the first, yeah the, the first i heard of you i remember seeing the old vancouver show and there's prism in the prime and whenever there was like i realized why now because i know all the members of the band but i was i always found it odd that the drummer of the band was basically the spokesperson spokesperson you were the one that they always interviewed you're the one that did all the tv things and and i uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I think you've always been articulate and smart. Um, you're, 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 you know, uh, you're really good with social skills. You're really good on understanding how things work and stuff. So you were obviously always a very smart person. It's just that school was probably, you probably was not focusing on where you believed your focus should be. Yeah. I mean, you think how, how difficult that would be, but we should be doing it. You know, the thing with, with, education what this this was really driven home uh, a few years ago um in the city city of uh, or i guess the um i don't know what they call it uh, washington dc the district of columbia um they had a baseball team uh, they still do the washington nationals and um that summer uh maybe four or five years ago they paid a player $300 million for, I think it was a 10-year contract, so $30 million a year to play baseball. Right at that time, the teachers in Washington, D.C. were talking about going on strike because they were being paid below the poverty level. So we're paying a young man $30 million a year to play a game that he'd play for nothing. If you said, we're not going to pay you anymore, he'd say, well, okay, I'll, uh, that's that's not very good, but I'm going to keep playing. Because he loves playing baseball. And and yet you, you can't afford to pay teachers above the poverty line. There's something wrong with that. You can you can use all. It might be the same thing in the medical world, too. I mean, the nurses and things. These are people that should be compensated for the importance of their work and uh you know um those things aren't happening so yes the school system completely didn't get me and i'm not alone in this you know there are thousands and thousands of people like me that just school never got and um and so you know we we just in my case, I left school and I made the best one my life as best I could. Turns out I didn't need it. I didn't need school. Yeah, essentially that's my story in a, in a different way, but very close, you know. I'm, um, 
I, my dad let me quit school to go on the road and here I, here I sit, you know? Um, but, uh, so getting back to it. So your, your parents, your, your, your dad was an accountant. Your mom was a homemaker. Now I met your dad because he was Bruce Allen's accountant. Yes. Yes. So he had yeah. an office in Bruce Allen town. Is that correct? Or was he a bookkeeper? Uh, how it happened is um, my dad was in the finance business and their 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 big business was financing cars, car loans. And um, at a certain time, I guess around 1975 or six, I, I'm not exactly sure, somewhere in the middle of the 70s, the government regulations changed to allow banks to loan money for cars because i guess before that they couldn't do it um and so the company that my father worked for quite quickly started to go out of business yeah it becomes redundant my dad, yeah my dad was 55 years old a world war ii veteran a grade eight educate educated guy um and um, he had gotten into the banking business after the second world war um, just because his friend so they would have been 20 something years old early 20s i guess um and he got in that's how we got into that business so he didn't have an he didn't have a uh, a resume of of any big education he um he so and he worked for this company for all those he found himself out on the street at 55 years old and he was despondent because nobody would hire him i mean he's just a yeah a 55 year old bookkeeper you know it's like uh, there was no, there was no place for him. So meanwhile, I'm, I'm playing, um, in all the nightclubs in Vancouver with my, uh, with my band, um, which might've been the rocket Norton band by this time, uh, seeds of time for a while kind of branched out and became two other bands. One was the rocket Norton band, another story. Um, so I go down every Monday to the Bruce Allen office to pay my commission to the accountant there, um, whose name was Ernst. And um, he was a nice, really, really warm, nice older man. And I would um, go down and we'd chat, and, oh, how are you, my friend? He'd say, you know, and we'd talk. And then one day he had a massive heart attack and just died. It's gone, just like that. Now, Bruce had made partnership with Sam Felpin then, and they had expanded their whole operation, and they were they had all these bands playing around. They needed a bookkeeper, you know. Um, and so I went to Ernst's funeral for some reason. I don't know why. It was completely out of character because uh, I'm too I was too shy, especially in those days, to do stuff like that. But I did it, and I walked into the house of the widow with some flowers, and then I ended up in the kitchen where Bruce uh, Allen and Sam Feldman were talking, drinking, and um, and I walked in. The first thing Sam, uh, Bruce says, he looks at me and says, Rocket, what about your dad? <laughs> and I went, look, and kind of confused at first, and then I realized what he was saying, you know, like they needed a bookkeeper, like right away. And I went, oh, well, yeah, I think he might be. I don't, okay, well, let me ask him. And so Bruce says, well, you know, when you when you talk to him, make sure he understands, you know, the, the language we use there, you know, and and all that. Uh, and I said, oh, OK, I'll ask him. So I went and said to my dad, I said, you know, they, they're looking for for a guy like you. Uh, but I'm supposed to say, you know, they use pretty foul language down there. And my dad looked at me and said, 
Well, I was in the Navy. <laughs> Not to mention the car business. <laughs> Not to mention the car business. But but anyway, so he took the he he took the job and he worked there till till after retirement age. Wow. Yeah, I, I did meet him a couple of times and he always struck me as a very wonderful guy. Real sweet guy. Real yeah. sweet. Yeah, everybody everybody liked your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay, so that that's great. So now, okay, so seize the time morphing into prism just sort of happened just because every, every it was just a everybody sort of knew everybody you have you have yeah. you know uh the, the now bruce bruce fairburn was in a the sunshine band correct with jim balance that was their connection yeah and the, the sunshine band must have been a late 60s early 70s band as well correct yeah, Fairburn was originally the trumpet player in a in a big R and B band. I think it might have been called the New Breed, maybe not. Um, uh, Spectre, maybe it was Spectre. Um, yeah, um, he was a trumpet player in the band, uh, and he was he was at music school. He uh, he was at university in economics. Jim Valance was at university, I think, in music. Um, and so they were friends. Um, and I guess they started up this, this Bruce was really good at organizing things and he got some kind of a government grant to get this, uh, like a street band together, like they, like a marching band with a tuba. I mean, the little band, like a, tu- uh, and that's what, and, and Lindsay Mitchell ended up joining that band. Uh, so, so like they what? Would, would play acoustic guitar. Oh, really? uh, or maybe mandolin. Uh, Lindsay Mitchell's a really great mandolin player. Um, anyway, they would just walk around, um, you know, uh, in, in the streets of Vancouver. Uh, Valance had a, uh, I guess he had either a snare drum. They had somebody on a on a, like a like a bass drum. They had a tuba player, uh, sax. I, I think it changed. I think I think it was had a lot of moving parts. Um, but and that was that was Sunshine, the Sunshine Band, and um, so in a sense, the Prism came out of the Seed of Time, the Sunshine Band, and a little touch of the Rocket Norton Band. <laughs> all the same, all the same, the usual suspects, you know, gathered in a room, and we all looked around and went, "Hey, we're the Seed of Time with a different singer," you know, uh, and that was that was in fact the truth and uh, no let's let's move ahead to the end of the end of the run to back era of prism and now we get henry small in now how does how did that all come about and with the henry smalls so with the henry small band you were part of it lindsey mitchell was part of it was al part of it yes he was and and then henry small so it was a four piece or was it five piece yeah john hall uh dropped out um he uh he didn't feel that we should continue without without ron um but and what happened is that henry small was considered one of the best if not the best singer in the country now he's i might be he might have american uh uh status as well and he's he his voice is just the instrument is unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, and so bruce allen um, he he recognized that we had an emergency here. We had a huge record deal with Capital Records, Capital EMI worldwide. In fact, it was the biggest record deal signed in the world 
No, I don't know whether I just never really followed up on that or what, but that's, that I think is pretty accurate. So um, I come home and I walk into my house and my girlfriend of eight years says, I'm leaving you. Oh God. So the picture in my mind, it's not, it's not exactly factual, but it, it, it sums it up of me walking into an empty house and sitting on my suitcase all by myself. So that was the end of, of the prism band. Uh, wow. I mean, talk about, talk about door, clo- door closing in a big way. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah. It was a pretty, uh, smashed my face right in, you know, uh, lots of plastic surgery. Now. Okay. But now somewhere, somewhere there's a crisscross there because that's, that's where me and you come in, where, you mentioned earlier where you came out to sort of watch me play guitar to see if I could play with the Rock and Norton band, or probably with the uh, Ron Tabak band, which you had formed. So you were out actively trying to get Ron Tabak a record deal using songs from the band you had with Jeff Neal, Donnie Underhill, John Hall, and yourself, The Hun. And some other songs. We had some other songs, too. And some other songs, and you were <laughs> using those songs to shop a deal for Ron. So what, what's the timeline there? Were you not still working in the Henry Small Band doing that? I mean, the Henry Small, version, first, of, yes. the Henry Small yeah. version of Prism. I, I got to think, think about that, because when Ron called me up, I was still, this was before the whole breakup that I just described. Ron called me up and said that he he wanted to now. So he had gone through a period of trying to get himself together, um, which I think he did. He, he he picked himself out of the gutter, put it that way. Um, and he was uh, on the road to repair. And he called me and he said, I, I really want to get, you know, carry on a solo career now. Um, and he asked me if I would not only be part of it, but he wanted me to manage it. And um, so there I was, you know, um, trying to keep the prism thing together. Uh, and uh, but I said uh, I, this sounded like a pretty good opportunity, and uh, so I said yes, and um, so formed the Ron Tabak Band um, with with uh, I think it was John, wasn't it John Hall and you and Tony and and there was that it that was it yeah essentially it was the hun band with ron singing and me on guitar because jeff was in streetheart by that time right okay and um so some demos had been recorded with ron singing and um i sent them out uh and had quite a bit of interest um and i have been offered a deal um and i can't really go into the details of what happened but the company all of a sudden mysteriously reneged. They just, it was like shocking. So that was kind of the end of, of the pursuit of that. Ron, reading between the lines, reading between the lines, I would say it's because you got a deal with the old singer from prison while there's an active prison out there. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it was, I know what it was, but I, I I don't feel comfortable in in saying it. So, um, uh, Ron kind of disappeared again, um, and then and then that whole prison breakup thing happened that I just described. So um, 
where I had to go from there is uh, I, I spent a good summer just, just um, being a midnight rambler. I mean, I just, I just partied. I just, I had a good, I mean, I was a, a 32 year old, six foot two, 180 pound rock and roll drummer, bachelor. You can imagine the trouble I got into. And, uh, and I did that for uh, probably a year um, with, with no, I played some gigs. Um, you know, there was some gigs around and I would put bands together for do gigs and, and um, sort of kept life going, but I had no direction or anything. Um, then I met my wife, love at first sight. We were engaged in one week and we'd been married for almost 40 years. Where did you meet B, by the way? We were introduced, formally introduced by a mutual friend who came to the introduction as a chaperone. <laughs> what? Yep. I, I was in a restaurant. In Vancouver? In Vancouver. I was sitting there with the chaperone who was a radio DJ, a really successful radio DJ. We were sitting there and uh, he had arranged this. He talked to both of us about it separately and then made this rendezvous. She came into the restaurant, walked around the corner. I saw her. That was the end of my roustabout life right there. Well, because she's a Saskatchewan girl, correct? Yep. We've been together ever since. And so when, when did when did B move from Saskatchewan to Vancouver? Or had she? Uh, around, about the late 70s, uh, around 78, I think. And what was she doing when you met her? She, um, she worked um, in the healthcare system. She was a nurse working um, at the old um, tuberculosis hospital, which I think was a hospital for veterans down on Oak Street. Um, and so that's what she did for a job. And other than that, she was, um, she was a party girl. So she was a party girl. I was a party guy. And um, the snap of a finger, that all completely changed, and we became domesticated. <laughs> the um, the first time I met B was at the Visions sessions in Mushroom. I you brought me in to sing some backups on a song, and she was yeah. there at the session, or she walked in during the session because I, yeah. I remember she being quite struck by her. She was a lovely woman. Oh yeah, yeah, Just, yeah, fantastic girl. You know, um, that's why you know we've had such a wonderful life together. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was the. There I went from the empty house sitting on the empty suitcase, you know, that whole thing to, you know, from rock bottom to, to the height of heights. Uh, and then I, you know, from there on in started to get my life together. But now once again, another crossover in your life, because before prism died or was ended, you had formed the hun on your off time. So you and John from prism with Donnie Underhill from trooper, and Jeff Neal from my band, Shama, who had split up, and you guys started working together as the Hun. Yeah. And so that must have been, I'm saying, probably 1980 to 81, 82 yeah. in there? No, 79 to probably 1980 to 81. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And the only well, reason I, I know that is because I know when Jeff left, uh, he was playing in trauma with Jim Valance and Michael Sicoli at the time, and Jeff left it. He got an addition with Streetheart. He took it, went to move to Winnipeg. And I started playing with Trauma. And shortly after is when you came out to see if I would be worthy of playing guitar with Ron, Ron, 
tobacco ban. Now, the interesting thing is I still have a poster from that. I'm going to see if I can bring it up during this interview somewhere. There's a poster from us playing, I think, at Whispers in North Vancouver. And back then, I know that you were still part of prison because you were not allowed to use your own name. So you went by Mac Knife. And oh, yeah. it, was, it was Mac RN Knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that now. <laughs> um, yeah, the Hun the Hun band was very interesting because one of these one of these casual gigs that I would was doing all the time. Like, I, I people would call me and just say, "Say we got we got this gig. Can you put a band together?" I had all I had all the guys. I had the Bill Henderson and you know guys from uh, you know. Um, um, from all, all the local trooper and, and prism and, and, and a lot of the local musicians who were really great and never, never went on to big recording things, but, and I had all these guys and I just phone them up and say, we got a gig on Saturday night. We're doing a boat cruise, you know, uh, uh, 200 bucks each or whatever, you know? Um, and, uh, we just show up and play all the old R and B songs, no, no rehearsals or anything, but, um, I did get a gig somewhere. It was like, and I think it was a week long gig. So uh, I was looking for a guitar player and the booking agency, the, real, the Feldman agency, they said, Oh, this, this, this kid uh, played with Shama. He's, he's, they just broke up. Uh, or was it trauma? It was Shama. Shama. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they said, hey, uh, he's, he's just kind of, you know, at liberty. And I said, okay, send him over. <laughs> and Jeff walks in um, to, um, the rehearsal studio that I had in the house and, you know, all six foot five or six of them. I mean, I'm six too. He, I was looking up at him. Um, and, uh, he was just the nicest guy I'd ever met. Uh, and, um, they started playing. He was fantastic. So we did the gig. Well, the first night of the gig, the singer who was Kenny McCall turns around to the, to Jeff and he's in the gig and he just says, Hey, you got anything? You know, like you have anything you want to sing? Like that, you know, that's how casual the whole thing is. And Jeff, you know, he's also he's always so modest and everything. Well, I, yeah, well, well maybe I, yeah, I could probably maybe do something. Uh, and he said, Well, I really, I really like I do this Dylan song, uh, uh, like a Rolling Stone. I, I could do that. So okay, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Neal. <laughs> and Kenny probably goes off and gets a beer. Um, and so we, we played this song. Both John Hall and I were blown away. Just the performance was just, it was just, we were just like, this is incredible. So, um, of course, I got his number and you know, everything. And uh, a few days later, uh, John said, I, um, he asked me for his number. He called him up and the two of them got together and started writing songs. And then they, I said, well, that sounds like great fun. So I, I brought over like a snare drum and a hi-hat and I started sitting in and I went that night to a local Mexican restaurant with Donnie Underhill. We used to like to do this and drank the bar dry. And during that time, I told him about this. So the next day, unannounced, Donnie Underhill shows up with a little amp in his bass and he just sits down and starts playing along. And we're all in, in John Hall's basement. <laughs> and they were sitting down there with the spiders and then, you know, and we're, we're dust cutting, you know, we're playing and it grew out of that. Um, and so then we thought, um, well, you know, we, we wrote, we started writing songs and we, we rented quite a big space out in Burnaby, like with full 
sound system, like staging sound system, the whole thing, because uh, we had money. We were young guys with money, <laughs> bad combo. Um, and, uh, so, um, we, and we started and, and we started writing all these songs and then we thought, well, these songs are pretty good. We should record them. So off we went into mushroom studios and recorded five songs. And we thought these are pretty good. These are, we're, we're pretty good. We should do some gigs. So Donnie was going off and playing in Trooper and John Hall and I were going off and playing in Prism. Jeff was just, you know, still at Liberty. So we would come back and uh, we would start to do the occasional gig. And uh, Jeff was just, we were, I, I was just, he, the guy was amazing. And I was envisioning us as an actual band. And um, I could see us on the big stages because that's the stages I was playing on. You know, I was playing on the big stages then, you know, in the big arenas. And so I could see this band. And he, I saw him as kind of the Jim Morrison kind of guy with a guitar. He's left-handed. Um, out front, and then John Hall with his his mountain of keyboards, you know, and I had a, this, this huge big drum set up with timpanis and tubular bells and all this other stuff. And, uh, and, 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 Don, and so he was like the star and we were like the band. So after we played a gig somewhere, Donnie Underhill, John Hall and I, got together in one of our rooms, because I can't remember where we were, but we were on some hotel. And we all admitted that this was it. This was our future. And we all we made a pact. We're gonna quit. Prism and Trooper, the three of the three of us, and we're gonna we're gonna go out on the road with Jeff and we're gonna be this Hun band. And um which is a huge step because back then Trooper and Prism were massive bands. At the very least in, in Canada, the very least in Canada. You were at the top Prism, guys were Prism was the the band of the year. We had yeah. just won the group of the Junos for band of the year and Trooper was the incumbent. They had won the year before. Wow. So we were the two biggest bands in the country. This would have been huge news. And I went to a record company in Toronto, the president of the company was a friend of mine. And I said, I want you to hear this. I was there doing something else, probably some prison, probably uh, interviews or something. And so I went to see my friend. So he said, oh, let me, let me listen. Then I gave him the cassette, the cassettes, put the cassette in this ginormous sound system he had in his office, turned, cranked it way up. And I listened to it and he goes, hey, this is fucking great, you know? And he turned it up even louder. And then we went out and we sort of touring around the kind of the facility. And yet it was it was blaring down the halls. And he came back and he said, What's the deal with this? And I told him. And, and, and so they wanted to sign it. So I had I had the two biggest alumni of the two biggest bands in the country, a record deal with one of the biggest record companies in the country. So we go storming down the hallway of our hotel room into Jeff's room, smash open the door. Jeff, we're going to quit our bands and we're going to be the Hun band. And Jeff looks up at us and says, I just joined Streetheart. And that was the end of the Hun band, which Jeff, and Jeff Neil, to this day, calls the greatest band that never was. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's Jeff and I were always in touch. We've always been close. Even, you know, the band split up, but that was, there was never, 
there was never bad feelings really uh, when the band split up. And Jeff and I were in contact. So I remember him laying a cassette on me of the Hun material. And I was working in a music store at the time and starting to work. And then, of course, yeah, and I, I had that. And I also had a demo tape of Mike, Jeff, and Jim Valance, that they had done some stuff. But that Hun stuff, I still play it to this day. I find it just, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it's still very cool music. It's still very cool. It's relevant, you know, and it, it, it's it's quite amazing. The sounds are great, you know. It's, it's just I don't know. I, and I I love the songs. I love the it, playing on it. It's the biggest regret of my musical life. Yeah, but but you know you can't you can't hold water back. You know when something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Something's up on my screen now. I don't know anything about computers, so okay, carry on. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, so okay, so now we got we got to move on. Holy, there's just so many aspects of your career because now, so, so the Ron, so the Ron Tabak band is gone, pretty much, almost before it started, uh, and and Prism is gone, and so, what did you do? Because we started playing together with the Beatles band at, for Expo '86, so there's a whole period of time between. I'm going to say 81, 82, like about four years where you were just sort of what were you, uh, am I off? Were you possibly doing some work with Bruce Allen at that time? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, some of the, some of this stuff could be fuzzy in my memory, but, um, I don't, I don't recall doing anything like that. Um, I, um, I know uh, one thing that I did during that period was the visions. Uh, uh, John Hall and Skip Prest right, and of course. I wrote visions, and then we we went to the Vancouver Planetarium and said we want to play this live. We we had discovered a young young female singer, yes. really great, Alicia Michelle, and um, and we wanted to play it live. And they, because they do this uh, light show thing, and they usually do it to Pink Floyd or something like. And we said, well, we we'd like to come in and play live to the light show. And they said, well, you can't do it because the light show is all on computer. So uh, we went, oh, okay. It has, well, to, be ta- you- it has to be timed with each bar of music, yeah. So it's all it's all programmed to to do a record. So John Hall said, well, just a minute, how do you run your, how do you do that? And they did it on a reel-to-reel eight-track, um, and they had the two tracks were on Cynthia time code, and then two tracks were the stereo music, and then I guess the rest of it, um, anyway, that's how they ran it. They, were, they ran it from, those, from that. And he said, John Hall said, well, wait a minute, we could do that. We could, we have, he, we had an eight track, you know, or, you know, not eight track, uh, uh, you know, a real to real eight track machine. And, um, he said, we can do that. We'll put Simpty time code on and we'll put a click track on, which is a metronome track. Um, and the drummer, me can play along to the click track and if as long as we don't make any um, adjustments to the arrangements, 
But when we play it, like bar for bar for bar, perfectly from beginning to end, we'll be perfectly in sync with whatever you do. So we went back to them, and they said, yeah, that would probably work. They had they actually had lab technician type guys in white lab coats working in the you know back room, and this you know and they went yeah yeah that'll work. So we did that and we performed. Uh, we did um, seven shows, no six shows a week at the planetarium, three hundred seat planetarium, for seven weeks. So we sold out forty two shows. Um, all on the strength of CPOX radio, FM radio, uh, and a lot of curiosity, I think, of people going, well, we love those light shows they do with, with um, Pink Floyd. This is, yeah. to our knowledge, this had never been done anywhere in the world, where a live band had played in sync with a light show in a planetarium. People had played in, in, in planetariums before. Um, Paul Horn did it in Vancouver. Um, Ultravox did it in London, but not with, not like a whole, we had, there was a whole story involved uh, with the light show. So we did that. Then I ran into a financier who loved this thing. And I said, he said, why don't you record it? And I said, well, because it will cost a hundred grand. Um, and they said, no problem. We'll put it together. And so these guys put all the money together. And we went into the studio and recorded the Visions album with the Vancouver Symphony. Took a whole, it was all done, the symphony was done in one day um, at Little Mountain Sound. Um, so we had it scored. Bob Buckley did the score for it, wrote the whole score out. Um, and uh, then we did the live performance at the Queenie. The one I was talking about, where David Steele came out doing the the Chuck Berry thing and and brought the house down, and we it was an enormous success. So I was doing things like that. I did a lot of TV work. I got myself in at CKVU, a local TV station, um, and I got myself in with the CBC. So when they were doing variety shows, which they did a lot of in those days, because um, CBC had was given too much money by the government and um, didn't know what to do with it, so they put on variety shows. They had dancers and everything. It was incredible. Um, and uh, I did a lot of work on stuff like that. Uh, I did a lot of convention shows, putting bands together for conventions. And then Expo happened. Um, I put all kinds of bands together for Expo, including Revolver. Right. And um, the shoes. We were the shoes. That's right. Yeah. I know we had no... We we the, the remember we had we did songs by the Beatles or by anyone who influenced the Beatles. Right. And we didn't we didn't have enough songs, so we were doing Everly Brothers songs and and, uh, and um, yeah, um, that was funny. I think we we did we did a run through one day at your house in Kitsilano and just went through a bunch of songs. Okay, good. Next, good. Next, okay. So well, you and Mike knew all the songs. So Skip Press and I, uh, we and I had learned to play drums, playing Longaringo. So I just inherently just knew it. I just knew how to play them. Well, you certainly did play that stuff really well. I I haven't seen anybody pull that stuff up like you did. It was oh, like that's, you that's, really you yeah, always found the right nuances to put onto those drums to make the songs happen. I guess that's what happens. You learn to play that way. <laughs> but, but that that band 
which we, as you know, we, we ended up calling Revolver. Um, so many people said, you are the best Beatle band in the world, that we just started calling ourselves that. Um, we weren't the best Beatle show, because we didn't have a hundred thousand or a million dollars to put together, you know, the, some of the shows that are out there. In fact, it ended up on Broadway. I think didn't Beatlemania, the show, end up Broadway. Um, yeah, actually, um, I forget the big name. shows. But we were the best band. Well, you know who said that was Rick Nielsen and Robin Zander when we played. That's right. They, That's they, right. They, they actually stayed backstage. They they watched our first half of our show. I met them out front. I went changed into my regular clothes. Went out front. And they said, hey, I said, you want to meet the guy? So they came back to the dressing room. Everybody shakes hands. And I think you said, you want to play with us? You want to do our encore? And they said, sure. So they stayed back and drank and ate our rider, I guess, while we were doing the second <laughs> act. And then they came up and did the encore. But nobody really even knew they were in the room because they had just arrived, saw our first show, and they were in the dark. And and all of a sudden, Cheap Trick is playing with Revolver for the encore. It was fantastic. And then uh, that's what Robin Zander says. He said, you know, we travel everywhere all over the world. We go to see every Beatles band we've ever seen. And you guys are the best we've ever seen anywhere. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, in retrospect, it was true. Yeah. And, and uh, so that was a that was a wonderful, uh, um, a, you know, uh, uh, period now, we didn't play all the time. I mean, we were we were hardly ever a full time band, um, but whenever we did, it was it was just brilliant. I just I just loved that. Yeah, it was it was fun. You and uh, you and Mike Sicoli were brilliant uh, in that band. Uh, Skip Press did the guitar playing part. It's just it was just the, the feeling that that we had. We we captured the feeling. You know, the funny thing is Jim Valance. Who, who we've mentioned quite a few times, just incredible musician, um, incredible drummer, uh, songwriter, extraordinaire, and a walking um, and a walking Beatles anthology, and a walking and Beatles anthology. He knows everything about the Beatles there is. He came to see us one day, when one night when we played somewhere, he came up to me after and he said, "You played everything like I, nobody could play it better than that." And I walked away going, I never even listened to the records. I don't play those parts anywhere near what Ringo plays. And I make mistakes, but I played it like Ringo would play it if he was here today. And that's what that's what fooled everybody. People used to come up and say, you look exactly like him. You know, I'm, a, I'm the least person that looks like Ringo in the world, you know, and, but it was all this attitude. And I think the whole band had that. I think that whole band had that attitude. We, we just nailed that stuff. You're, you're being a little humble because there's one thing about your drumming. That's absolutely remarkable. And I remember you creating things that didn't exist. Like you, when we, you do the opening to Sergeant Pepper and you would have a shaker, a maraca taped to your drumstick so <laughs> that you would shake it up into the overhead Oh, as you're going, boom, boom, and you were so you're getting the shuka 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 while you're playing the straight beat, and it was like it sounded like the record. You were playing all the parts all at once, and you did stuff like that all the time. So you're being quite humble, you know. I gotta give I gotta give you kudos where they, uh, where, you know, where you know you 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 were quite remarkable in that band. Well, isn't that the desperation the, <laughs> the mother of all invention or something? I don't yeah. know. If it's, anyway, well, thank you for that. Yeah. But anyway, so, okay, so now, uh, Re Revolver, now, 
you had started, I remember we were on the road with Revolver and you were researching how to write a book. I remember you. Because we talked one day, we were somewhere in Saskatchewan or something on the road, and you said, it's interesting. Somebody says, if you're going to, I read this thing, that if you're going to write a novel, what you do is you find your characters and learn and write everything about that character, where they went to school, what their parents were like, blah, 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 that character, then this character. And once you have all those people, the story will write itself. Yeah, that's right. Because they know exactly, you know exactly how each character is going to act in a given situation. That's right. And they do, they'll they'll do all the dialogue too. You don't even have to invent the dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, and I found that fascinating and enlightening, and it makes sense. It makes total sense. And 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 then of course, the outcome of that was an autobiography. But since then, you've done other you've I, done fictions. Yes, but I wrote the first book. Um, many people had been saying for years, "Oh, you got to write all these stories down. You got to write a book." And I always said, "Well, it's just a collection of stories by a guy who's not really famous." Uh, so who cares, you know, about these things? Uh, if Gordy Howe writes a book, everybody cares what breakfast cereal he has because he's Gordy Howe or Mick Jagger or, or any famous person. And so I rejected the idea. And then one day I came up with the ending and the ending, well, I won't tell you what it is. Um, so I came up with the ending. And when I had the ending, I wrote the whole autobiography like it was a novel. So all of the, the real people who appear in that book are all characters in the book. And I'm, I'm the protagonist. I'm the lead character. Mm-hmm. And it's fitting because for most of the, my life, I was a supporting, I, I was like the fly on the wall. I was in the room. I was there when all these things happened, but I wasn't an instigator. I wasn't really, I didn't tell the jokes. I didn't write the songs. I, you know, I just, I was always in the background. But I, I, I took it all in, and, and all that went into the book. So it became, it's an autobiography, but it, it, it reads like an art. Yes. Um, and after I wrote it, and it was very successful, so it, it, it sold really well. And it, in fact, oddly enough, it still sells to this day. Um, but that aside, after I finished it, I thought, well, I can do this. Because half, uh, half a dozen times during the writing of it, more, you know, a dozen times or more, as I was writing that first book, I would stop and say, well, I can't do this. I can't write a book. What, what am I thinking? Um, and then I just kept doing it, and then and it turned out really well. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can do this. I, I have a story. Uh, it was a, 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 There was a true life, what we call an inciting incident that happened not to me, but around me. Uh, and I thought, you know what? That's a movie. So I decided that um, rather than write it as a screenplay, which is very, very difficult, um, I could write it as a novel, which I felt comfortable doing. And so I did. I wrote my first novel. And um, now I've written four more since then. So, so what's, um, what's what's the names of for the people tuning in? What's the names of all the novels? Okay, so the first one is uh, Lost in Space, Rocket Norton Story. Yep. Then I wrote something called Live, Love, Die, which is kind of a suspense intrigue. The lead character is a woman, a young woman. Is that the one you're talking about? Live, Love, Die. Yes. Yeah. Is Live, that the one die. you're talking about that's like a sort of based on a real life? 
No, no, no. What I was talking about is it's lost in space. You know, uh, that, that I wrote it as a novel. You know, no, 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 no. You, you, you mentioned something about something that happened around you that you wrote a story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this thing happened that I just happened to be there for. It was a very dramatic thing. Um, and I'm not giving it away to anyone because they should read the book. Is that um, live, and that is Live, Love, Die. Live, Love, Die. Okay. And um, yeah, this, this young, young woman, we don't know whether she's for real or whether she's lying or what the deal is. Uh, and all the characters are basically doing the same thing. So uh, it's very interesting, very interesting novel. Um, then I wrote um, a comedy. I wrote a comedy called He Was More Than He Seemed about a, about a man, um, an older man that can converse with machines. He can, like, just common machines, toasters, vacuums, um, and he works in an appliance repair shop uh, in New York because he, he can, a blender comes in, doesn't work. He just says, oh, well, you know, he can talk to it, right? And so he was very good at it. Well, um, some really extraordinary things happened to this guy. So that's that one. And it's a total comedy. Um, then I wrote um, a book called Torch that takes place in just post-World War II. Uh, in the early, you know late 1940s, mostly in New York, um, a bit in South Carolina, and a bit in Hollywood, uh, and it's about four four characters, boy girl, boy girl, um, of mixed races, mixed race, uh, uh, and how they they're they're singers, they're actors, and what happens to them, and how they interact with each other, and what happens to them in the end. Um, then I wrote um, I wrote a baseball book um, that ended up becoming. It was too difficult to write the whole story. I've still got it. Um, it's about a baseball game played by all the top players in history. Wow! And it, it it's it's not like. Um, it's not like uh, Field of uh, Dreams. Field of Dreams. Um, this is this is more like these. These were all like like the you know Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and and um, all players and how they they come together to play an actual game. The whole book is this game, and it's been um, there's the the main characters in the in the book are these um, six fans sitting in the stands and the interaction they're all you know serious baseball fans so they all know everything about baseball and they're talking and they have relationships going so during the game there's all this relationship thing happening with these six six fans and there's interaction with the with the players themselves you know um, so roger hornsby might come out you know to start yelling at them about something and you know uh, i i know a lot about the history of these players so there's a lot of character involved in them but i had i never f really finished the story so i ended up turning it into a textbook which is called the real all the real best all-star baseball team uh, of the 20th century by the numbers. And 
see, I'm a, I'm a statistics nut. So I went through all the statistics in baseball. The thing that's beautiful about baseball is that everything that happens in the game is recorded. Everything. Names of the umpires, how much wind is blowing, where, you know, we got a Southwesterner, you know, Westerly at, at 14. Everything is kept in stats. So you can go through this whole thing. And I, I had, a, I invented a formula for, for comparing the guy that played baseball in the thirties with, with a guy that played baseball in the nineties, because they, they, anyway, and it, it's pretty cool. And same thing with pitching. And, um, so that, um, and those are the books I read and uh, the book that, uh, or that I've written and I've read other books. Um, and <laughs> my new book that I, I'm doing exactly what you just described. I'm in that process right now. I'm going through the characters, the, the protagonists, the antagonists, the main characters, the secondary characters, and I'm going back to where they were born, where they went to school, what happened to them on the playground and in, in when they were six years old, uh, you know, who their parents were, when they died, if they're, everything about them. <laughs> and um, it takes place in 1970 in New Orleans, and the setting is very musical. There's a band, but it's not about music. It's not about the band. The band just happens to be people in, involved in this story. But it's not about the band or anything like that. So it's not one of those kinds of stories. Um, it's, it's, it's about this couple. And um, anyway, uh, I didn't really have a title for it. And I was talking to someone about something completely unrelated. And they were talking about, uh, about dance, going dancing or something. And I looked at them very seriously and I said, drummers don't dance. And, um, which I believe <laughs> Ringo could dance better than that. Forget it. Drummers just can't dance. dance. <laughs> and, um, uh, the person I was talking to said, now that's a great title for a book. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be the title of my new book. Right. But you know what? What's remarkable about that wonderful brain of yours, Rocket, is how you see opportunity in everything. Because you you're, now you've mentioned baseball here, and of course, one of the other things. Now, when you married B, you inherited a stepson, who yeah, you, four years old. Yeah, and and who got involved in baseball, and you started coaching his team, and you saw that there was a lot of things that other coaches could learn from. So you started an entire series of videos for that. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Yeah, the main the main thing, and it's not just baseball, is that what I discovered as a dad who got strong armed into coming in and coaching the team with the classic line, if you don't do it, there won't be a team. Right. You know, the guilt trip. Well, okay, I'll do it. Um, and they were just really young. They were like six. They were the little guys playing T ball, you know. And um, so I didn't really have to have a lot of baseball knowledge at that point. Um I mean, I knew baseball. I played baseball, but but uh, I hadn't really thought about baseball in many years uh, at this point. Uh, what I recognized immediately was that the, the the parents coaching the teams, who were pretty much all dads, there were some moms, <clears throat> was it was all about them, you know, how they were being seen by their neighbors, you know, and so they had to win the games. Because they had to, the name, otherwise they wouldn't. They felt this is this is what I witnessed 
or this is how I perceive this, is that people would think that they weren't doing a good job because they didn't win the games. Um, and I was going, well, there's something wrong with this. Um, so my very first game, it was so disorganized that I was standing at the sidelines, you know, um, like in front of the dugout there. And um, this guy comes running across the field and says, you're supposed to come out and, and, and toss the ball to your, your hitter. And I went, oh. And then the guy looked at me, don't you know what you're doing? I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather be in, in the nightclub playing playing uh, some uh, old Beatles song. Um, anyway, so we lost that game twenty six to nothing. And sure enough, as I was dragging the bag of equipment back to the car, and all the parents were yelling at me, and all the kids were crying, I said to beat, I quit. I'm not going to do this. This is just this is awful. It's no fun. Um, so I got home, you know, had a had a cocktail and said, well, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And that's when I started to recognize the problem is that parents get involved and they see it all about them, where it's all really just about two things. It's about children having fun and learning a new skill. And I decided right then and there, I don't care if I ever win a baseball game ever again. And for three years, I never lost another game. The kids just loved playing. They just had so much fun. I never, in a game, ever said, well, maybe in the... That's that's too dramatic a statement. Because it took me a while to hone this and realize and turn this into an application. But um, I never yelled at kids during a game. Like, if they were... Their batting stance was wrong, or their swing was wrong, which, of course, would be there. I I ended up coaching uh, Kale uh, until he was 12, and that's when Little League ends. And then I stayed on, and I, I coached for another eight, uh, eight years or so. So just, you know, as a volunteer, not as a parent. Uh, because by this time, I had recognized this, that they got to have fun. Don't yell at them. They're just here to have a good time. But teach them the skills. Teach them how to play. Teach them how to hit the ball. Because it's a it's a it's a very very difficult thing to do, uh, and very young children can hit the ball doing it all wrong because the pitchers are not very good and the fielders muff the ball so it's an error what they call the hit. Um, so, but I would say to them, I'd say, well, that's fine. Yeah, okay, I know you're hitting the ball now, but in a couple of years, if you want to keep playing, when it really starts to get fun. The pitchers are going to be really good, and you're not going to be able to hit them because you've got a hole in your swing. And um, a lot of the kids would say, I don't care. I know what I'm doing. And I go, okay, well, that's fine. You just keep doing it. But most of the kids wanted to learn. They wanted to learn a new skill. They're never going to go be baseball players. They're not going to go into the major leagues. Uh, you know. But what was important to me is that I would teach them the correct way to play, how to field the ball, how to throw the ball, how to hit the ball, how to pitch so that when they were parents, they would teach their kids the right way. So they wouldn't pass on, you know, bad information, which actually, when you think about it, is what we were talking about at the beginning with school, how they keep teaching us about history, but they don't teach us the whole thing. So um, so I, uh, I stayed on and um, I ended up creating a video called How to Coach Baseball to Kids. 
And this video was aimed at parents, not at not at the players. And it went into all the skills and how to how to how to do these things, how to play first base, how to play left field, you know, how to do all these things. It wasn't complicated. I didn't go into the, the baseball is a game you it's like golf. You'll never ever master it. Yeah. You know, it's it's just too hard to to do. Um, but you have to know how to the basics of it, and that's what I, I and I was we we sold thousands of these videotapes. There were videotapes then, um, mostly to um, in the United States. Um, you know, I mean, some again in Canada too, but it was really popular in the U.S. Oh, well, I was just talking with Keith Scott, and he, you know, he's talking about his kids being raised down near San Diego. And, uh, you know, she said, like, the kids in our neighborhood, like, one's gone to the major leagues. He said, they take their sports so seriously down here. It's like it major money and major just, you know. Oh, it's a hockey in Canada. Uh, as I understand it, like, hockey is, I, I never I never coached anything else other than baseball. Uh, Kale played soccer. He played basketball at the highest level in the university. Um, but um, baseball was the game, my only game I knew. And... Um, and I understand that in hockey in in Canada, the, the whole the whole thing is just over the top. Mm. I mean, you know, they fist fights in the stands, and you know, I saw it. I saw it in soccer too. People get so mad at the at the uh, at the ref. You know, the, the, they, they I've I've seen dads chase. Um, is it are they referees or umpires? What are they called? Referees Referee, yeah. into the parking lot into their cars, wanting to beat them up. Over yeah, some, yeah. And they're just, it, it, they're it's just insane. Kidding. What message is that sending to the children that are playing the game? You know, yeah. well, you that's, see it everywhere. That's that's where I, you know, I played uh, just a little bit. I, I played hockey when I was young. My dad wanted me to play hockey. He spent an enormous amount of money, put me through figure skating lessons, everything. I was a good defenseman, but my dad said uh, he realized the day that I wasn't going to be a hockey player. And I remember I was skating backwards because I could skate backwards as fast as I could skate frontwards because of of uh, figure skating. And I'm skating backwards as defenseman, and there's a forward coming towards me, and he made the, the big mistake. He was looking at his puck, so I just stopped. And he ran into me and went back and knocked himself out. So everybody comes down to the boards. I walk, I skate over to my dad. My dad's there to tell me, hey, great play, and I'm crying because I'd hurt the kid. And he yeah. went... That made me realize you'd never be, you'd never be a hockey player. Says your heart's too big, you know. Yeah, it's a. It, I mean, yeah, it's a tough game. The tough. That that's a real tough game. But um, yeah, these these children's sports need to be. In fact, I had a review from uh, the some. Uh, there was a lib. There was the, the Library Association in the United States had like two hundred thousand libraries. And this was the the organization that that oversaw the whole thing in the, in America. And they wrote a review because they wrote reviews on videos um, and and books, I guess too. But anyway, videos. And they wrote a review on it, and it said in the review, this video should be required viewing by every coach in every sport. Oh, it's not nice. Fantastic. Yeah. So we sold quite a number, quite a few thousand of them after that. That came out. Wow. Um, That's fa yeah. fabulous. It's like, you know, and, and there's so many aspects of the the number of careers. Like you're a great bunch of guys, right? And it's like, like you, you've had, like 
you're also we're doing concert promotion for quite some time and bringing in the Glenn Miller Orchestra and all that stuff. And that was a huge success as well. And and not to mention your car business. You know, everything you <laughs> everything you have done seems to have been an amazing success. Ah, well, guess I better keep doing it. I don't know. Um, it's uh, thank you <laughs> for saying that. I, I don't know. I just, I just, I just do what what I think the road. You know, I mean, life is life is every day. We we come to cross. We come to forks in the road. You know, you got to make choices. Some of them are good, and some of them aren't. You know, uh, yeah. I've had lots of disappointments um, uh, and uh, very few regrets. I, I was saying that, you know, the Hun Band is it's a regret. I, I think it's more of a disappointment because um, I didn't actually cause it to not happen. It would have happened. It was circumstance yes. that, that caused it not. It's timing and circumstance. Those are disappointments. Um, and we all have disappointments, and we just move. You have to move on. You know, it is, you just move on and do something else. Well, look at look at the stuff you're facing right now, and you've actually turned it into something incredibly positive. You know, well, it's uh, when when you're in your doctor's office and he says, or she in this case said, you know, you've got metastasized stage four cancer, you're going to be dead in six months. Um, that wakes you up, you know, um, and uh, I basically I basically have said. It's kind of like, um, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't want to do that. I don't want to die in six months. So that was a year and four months ago. Um, and that's how the that's how the fuck cancer benefit concert got born. An- that- another amazing success. Well, not 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 really thanks to me, but thanks to all the people that, that got involved because um, I, I, when I was originally, I, I, my original cancer was colon cancer and that was about almost two and a half years ago. Uh, they said they would take care of that, uh, which, which didn't happen. Um, and that's how the, the cancer came back and now it's doing this. But, um, originally I went through, I went through, uh, three surgeries, radiation and 12 chemotherapies, which are brutal. I called each one five days in hell. Um, and then I got them every two weeks. So I only had a few decent days. And even those days were not that great. Um, so um, right near the end of that, I, th- I figured, you know, the, at the end of the first chemo, I figured I was going to be, you know, out of the woods. And I wanted to give something back. I wanted not not to the overall, necessarily to the overall system because it's so huge. But I uh, the people that treat you, when you have cancer, the nurses and the technicians, and and, and and are so kind and they're so caring. You go in to get this poison pumped into you, um, and they're just so careful with you. And so, and I thought, you know, I gotta do something. I flowers, candy, and something, you know, just to say thank you. And so, I thought I would get together a few of the old old crowd, and we'd play a gig somewhere. And um, I mean, it was it was so informal. I was thinking, well, we pass the hat or something. Just you know, raise a couple of grand, maybe, and you know, buy buy them all some wine. I, I no, I didn't even have a proper goal in mind. And then other musicians I was talking to, and they said, oh, I'd like to be on that. And the next thing you knew, uh, I had a theater booked, a five hundred seat theater, 
And I go, oh, this is pretty scary. You know, I was like, so then more musicians came forward and said, well, well, gee, I'd like to do that too. And um, so I had to, I had to move out of that theater and move into an 1100 seat uh, hard rock theater uh, out in, uh, in the suburbs. And by this time, I had Loverboy, Trooper, Prism, Chilliwack, Lee Aaron, Headpins, Nick Gilder, Powder Blues, um, and Streetheart. And, uh, and they all came, they all played for nothing. Everybody came, came and, and we put on this big concert and we raised $344,000. Uh, it just blew my mind. I thought I was going to, you know, raise a few hundred bucks. And, <laughs> and here we, we did this. And every musician at the end of that night came to me and said, we're going to do it again. Right. And which was the farthest thing from my mind at that point. And I went, Oh, well, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. So, um, you know, we, B and I went on our regular, um, migration that we do every winter. And then, um, I, I was thinking about it while I was there and, uh, said, yeah, everybody wants to do it again. We do it again. We'll do it bigger. We'll do it better. And so now we're doing another one. Um, and, and it's going to be uh, in October this year in downtown Vancouver at a, at a bigger theater. Um, I, I, this In about three weeks, it's going to be announced. So it'll be a big, big splash. Will, got you most be, of, will you be able to put fuck on the uh, advertising? Well, I got it on. I, see, last year we sold the whole place out, and we never advertised. I didn't have any money to advertise. So, Rock One Hundred and One Radio here in Vancouver, um, they they kind of they just talked it up. Uh, the DJs just talked it up and said, "Oh, you know." And I was on a couple of times, and I had I had Jeff Neal and and uh, Lee Aaron and Bill Henderson. I think had a, uh, maybe Tom Lavin, a few guys go on, and and, and that's all we did. I uh, put up some posters. Um, they got some posters made, and they said "fuck cancer" on it. Um, but when I went on the radio, um, I would say I would call it "f cancer," and then I would say, "and it's not f," you know, so that you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and then one day I was on, and the DJ I was I was I was with, he said he just said basically to himself he said fuck it he said you gotta come to fuck cancer <laughs> <He> said, <laughs> i don't know if he got into trouble for it or what but uh anyway we did it um so um i'm i'm doing it again on october 28th and we're doing it at the uh, uh, center for the performing arts uh, in in vancouver i'm pretty much everyone back uh, with the addition of uh colin james and jim burns that's um, awesome what a lineup. fantastic lineup um, and uh, much bigger, uh, much better production values. Although the first one, the production values were quite high, but um, this time I've, I've raised more sponsorship money. Um, uh, we have a company um, called the Wheaton Precious Metal Corp. Um, they have stepped up really big um, in, in, because I, uh, in doing this, when I first started it, I want all the ticket money to go to cancer. I don't want to take anything out of the ticket money to pay for sound and lights and, and production costs and things like that. When someone pays $200 for a ticket, it's a donation. You're donating it to cancer. The concert is free. 
And um, that's what we're doing again. So I, I've got my sponsors and meeting at the head of the line right now. Um, uh, and we're, that's the way we're doing it again. We're, and we're going to, uh, we have a government, there's a government level that, that's going to match. Um, we had this last year too. So if I can do three or 400,000 at the gate, um, I can, I can donate $800,000 wow. and it's all going to children's cancer. Wow. That's unbelievable. I got three minutes. I got three minutes, Mick. And I got to go. Okay. Well, sadly, we're probably not going to be able to get into the pictures because we've got 69 pictures to go through too. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll make that another time. I'll just call you next week and we'll go through the pictures. How's that? That sounds great. Yeah. It's always, it's just a joy to talk to you whether it's over a coffee or, or over the computer screen here. I know oh. we haven't, we haven't been together in a long time. I mean, I live over in Victoria now, so it's hard to get together with anybody, you know? Well, you're the best of the best. The hardest working man in rock and roll. That's what I call you. <laughs> well, Rocket, thanks for everything. Thanks for making the time. I know you're, you've got an incredibly busy schedule with all the stuff going on in your life. So, um, and my hats off to you as always uh, big hugs across the, uh, the water here. And uh, let's let's make a point. Let's make a point of going through these pictures because I really want people to see these. Okay. And yep. I'd love to have you comment on on them. It won't take too long, but it'll it'll definitely put us over time on this. So. Okay, we'll do that. Um, uh, we'll be in touch and and we'll cue that up. All right. Thanks, brother. Take care. I love you, pal. Love you too, buddy. Bye bye. Okay. bye.